Hey everyone, welcome to Rare Bird Radio. This is Karen Stefano, author of the memoir, What a Body Remembers. With me today is the author, Paul Allen Rubin, author of Terms of Engagement, Stories of the Father and Son, a short story collection. How are you, Paul? I'm very good. How are you? As I, I, as am... I said, it's windy outside and my hair is a little glossy, <laughs> but, uh, but otherwise I'm good. Otherwise, otherwise you're good. Otherwise and, life is good. Uh, and uh, thank God for uh, uh, audio-only podcasts and, as opposed to webcasts. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to start out... Uh, with what has kind of become my standard question in these podcasts. And that is to give you the hypothetical of uh, you live in Brooklyn, you're at a Brooklyn hipster cocktail party, and someone asks you about your writing. You tell them that you wrote this book, Terms of Engagement, and they say, well, what's that? What's it about? What's your response to that? I'll happily tell you, uh, first of all, a hipster party, um, well, not likely I'll be attending one of those, but uh, I do hear what you're saying. If, if somebody asked me what it was about, I would say that it was uh, a collection that uh, is uh, with, with a variety of stories, uh, each of which is either from the point of view of a father or the son, uh, each one feeling... Uh, at best misunderstood um, and at worst estranged from the other one and yet neither one being able to cross the bridge to uh, something that would uh, feel like uh, a kind of a, a kind of a consensus so uh, it's really um, uh, and then additionally I would say that um, um, while certainly um, every relationship is arguably precious and unique, um, there's something very particular about fathers and sons, and that's another uh, thing that I tried to get at in the collection, what it is that's particular or that what particularizes this relationship. Yeah, and uh, you, you talk about estrangement, and uh, that seems to be a pretty consistent theme within these stories. And I have to say that you did a great job of demonstrating the, the desire braided with the inability to cross the bridge uh, past the past the estrange, estrangement, and you created so much tension in each of these stories that I felt it in my chest. Mm -hmm. uh, so you did you did a, a, a wonderful job, and I I I wanted to talk to you. I uh, we don't have enough time to 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 address each of the stories, but I wanted to speak to you primarily about. Uh, the piece, The Problem of Ed, and then hopefully we'll have time to get to a minor adjustment, another sure. another piece in the collection. But ask if you would read uh, an excerpt, if you would, from sure. The Problem of Ed. Yeah, happy to do that. Um, can I, am I allowed to give just a, like a one minute uh, sort of uh, setup, if you will? Please, uh, yeah. Only because these things are always 
problematical to the degree that somebody said, well, what, what, what happened before that? What's going on? Um, so I tried to pick a scene that was uh, sort of self-contained. At the end of the day, this is part of a part of a triptych or a trilogy of stories. And the problem of Ed is the second story. Um, this is about the first story in, in 25 words or less is uh, about a father and son. At this, at this stage, the son is an adolescent. Um, vulnerable, needless to say, and the father, vulnerable to kind of a working class guy who simply has difficulty uh, uh, connecting with his son. Uh, he has an alcohol problem. Uh, he also has uh, a p problem saying things to his son that, that sort of sever the son's sense of identity, not the least of which uh, happens in the first story. He calls the son, and this is an adolescent male boy, heterosexual boy, and calls him a mama's boy in front of a whole group of other people. And, you know, that's sort of representative of how the father um, acts out when he, particularly when he's had a little too much alcohol. So fast forward, the son is now a, um, has a PhD and he's a teacher and he, um, he has, uh, uh, in his early thirties, um, and he has not seen his father in, um, in uh, I think six or seven years, and from his perspective, um, he was never able to to cross that bridge with the father, uh, and uh, and is and is estranged until he receives a phone call from the father, asking if the father can come visit him because he's very very ill, um, meaning the father, of course. So the father has just visited him, and this takes place shortly after the initial visit. Um, uh, so uh, this again is from the son's point of view. So um, when I the the I don't use first names uh, in this story. So it's, it's um, when I refer to he, that's referring to the son. All right. So he's just just had an interaction with his father. He enters his complex's gym. He should have woken his father. Should have said he would be right back. He lowers his duffel to the floor. He mimes tipping a cap to the other occupant, indicative of his admiration for the middle-aged single mother of two adolescent boys who waves at him from her elliptical trainer. She brushes a nub of sweat from her nose with her wristband. He winks and proffers a high fist pump. She is lithe, and her black tights attract him. He is tempted to extol her consistent dedication to remind her of consistencies virtue, and decides not to cross the line. He faces down the heavy cobalt blue punching bag that the board permitted him to purchase. A squall of ire unbalances him. He faces down Everlast. Do not capitulate, John B. He seesaws his shoulders. He jiggles his hands. Ritual anchors him. He tugs the bottom of his sleeveless tee. He tightens the wristbands of his fingerless leather gloves. He squeezes his fists. He taps his chest. He adjusts the elastic of his white boxing trunks. His waist is comfortable. He adjusts his headphones. He reaches for the mini iPad strapped to his white arm's bicep. He scrolls down the something old playlist. Dvorak, Rossini, Mozart, West Side Story, Janis Joplin, Stevie Wonder, Bruce Springsteen, Shakira. No. He presses heavy bag mixes. Eminem, Common, Quali, Kendrick Lamar. Yeah, LL Cool J. 
Mama said, knock you out. One foot in front, one foot behind in the 10 seconds of music that precedes the lyrics. Guard up, left arm extended an inch from the bag, clutched right fist beneath his chin. Conquer. He faces down Everlast. He jabs up, jabs down, up, down, up, down, up, down, smashes into the feel of canvas rock. Hook up, down, up, down. He quickens his punching motion. He pounds hard. Up, down, up, down, up, down. Successive blows are swifter, harder. Uppercuts, hard, swift, hard, swift, hard, swift, hard, swift, hard, swift. He punches into the pain that gores his left wrist. He grinds his teeth, fists of iron. His reddened knuckles burn. The clacking against the bag's surface booms louder with each punch. The bag is not hard. His arms accelerate like pistons. His punches burst right, left, right, left, right, left into the bag, the impenetrable bag that taunts him. His arms droop. He scrunches his face against the bag and sucks air open mouth. The leather tastes good. His left knee buckles. (laughs) Nice. He straightens and commends the bag for its resilience. Dread gnaws at him. He bends over and wipes perspiration from his forehead. He squats. He cannot account for this reemergence of devastation in his father's presence. Childhood feelings he had long since vanquished, or so he thought. He cannot account for the reemergence of this craving, this crying out to make his father understand who I am. Is the trigger Ed's imminent death? He does not know. No matter, he will treat these old emotions as encumbrances, as ephemeral. He will do what he can for his father, all he can and no more. He will have reached the extra mile when he feels himself becoming a sacrificial lamb. Thank you, Paul. It's interesting that you had selected this excerpt from this story because in in reading the collection, I underlined a lot of passages, but one of them that I underlined was part of what you read. Mm. He cannot account for the reemergence of this craving, this crying out to make his father understand who I am. And it's it, it that was a line that 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 gave me chills when I read it. And it actually reminded me of the conversation I had uh, in another relatively recent podcast with the writer Liz Scott, who's a psychologist and a writer, and we had discussed, and this passage reminded me of it, uh, what a job you pull on your kids if you withhold approval and withhold any attempt at, at understanding. And yes, yes. And that is, if we were back at the cocktail party, that's a theme that I think runs through all the stories. And in particular, this one, um, you you have a, a, an, an adolescent male who, who um, well, let me just backtrack and, and say that uh, I'm not sure that there's a child on the planet that was ever born to want to be disaffected from their parent or parents. That's something that the parent has to work hard to do. Um, and so uh, I think children are, um, by nature, uh, would prefer 
to have a connected, coherent relationship with their parents, to put it mildly. So when that doesn't occur, there's just an enormous amount of dissonance. And as you suggested, a male not having approval from his father um, wreaks havoc not only, I think, with that male's identity as a male, whatever, however that identity is characterized. It doesn't have to be some stereotypical characterization. But that said, I do think that, um, that there is a particular um, kind of, as I said, dissonance that occurs, disaffection that occurs, in particular when, A, sons do not receive, um, as you had suggested, uh, uh, a, a kind of coherent sense of approval from the from the father, and I and I say coherent because sometimes I think dads are guilty of um, saying "Hey, yeah, great," or you know, saying something that's sort of glib because they're not able to emotionally really connect to that to that feeling that the that the son really wants, which is right. not only the words but the the truth of the em- emotionality. Anyway, I don't want to blab on and on. So no, yeah. no, but you like you're. Uh, you're getting right to what I think attracts readers to these stories is that dissonance. And your pieces are centered around uh, stories of the father and son. And as you know, I've written a lot, uh, both in terms of essays, memoir, fiction, mm-hmm. about uh, the di- the dissonance that occurs between mothers and daughters, yes, and yeah. and that's what and that's what attracted me to your work because it's uh, it's the same it's the same thing. Uh, I, I don't want to turn this you. I don't want to turn this around, but but I, I, while while there are certainly I'm sure differences, maybe significant differences, the fundamental themes I would think are are similar. I don't have a daughter, so. Uh, I don't even have that experience vis-a-vis my wife, if you know what I mean. But I would think that the fundamental experiences are similar or the same, no? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And so that, you know, going back to the talking about crossing bridges, uh, you know, there are mother-daughter themes in in all works of art and there are father-son themes and there are differences, but there are also parallels. And this actually brings me, I want to step away from your collection terms of engagement for just a moment uh, to talk about your piece in the Washington Post on on parenting. And uh, and just to give our listeners uh, a a taste of what it's about, I, I found it so touching and so spot on because the thesis of the piece is that you think that the most important thing that you can say to your kid is, I love you. But in your essay, you talk about how saying I love you is meaningless if your kid doesn't feel heard. And you talk about listening. It's a call to action to listen and to engage in the practice of listening. And you actually, you treat listening almost as a spiritual practice and it is a practice. And yeah, and, and it's, and it's super interesting to me because I've had, uh, 
the I met your son. So mm-hmm. uh, obviously, I uh, I met you. I read the piece through a different lens, and of course, I'm a new stepmom to mm-hmm. uh, three teens, and. Uh, I, I I thought it was a it was a fascinating piece, and I was hoping one that you could comment upon it, and also if you could just tell listeners where to find it. I don't know if they can go to your website if you have a link, or if they just Google Wapo Parenting Paul Allen Rubin, or but uh, I, I bet people listening would want to read it. If if they go to my website. Uh... PaulAllenRubin.com. They'll see a link to it, and uh, all you have to do is uh, put in uh, Washington Post essay Paul Allen Rubin, and it will pop up. Okay, cool. So uh, either way, uh, uh, you can one can find it, and I think everything you've said is accurate. I, I would just add, uh, really, by way of reiterating that for me, I've always felt that um, uh, uh, you know there's an opposite side of the coin. Uh, if you will, to love conquers all. And that opposite side could be love conquers nothing. (laughs) To the degree that I'm not sure that love in fact is a conqueror, but merely an outcome. So that if you punch your child in the nose and say, but I really love you, what what in fact does that really mean? So that the child discovers that they are loved by virtue of the practices, as you put it, that parents uh, uh, work on um, so that so that that love and affection is in effect earned. And I found out in my experience as a parent uh, with my own son, um, and and also in my experience as a son with a with a father who just simply was not equipped to ever hear me from my perspective or my brother ever. Um, and so uh, I realized along the way with my own son that among the myriad issues that I had to contend with, you know, as a parent who was uh, making it up as I went along, was that um, if he believed that I heard him, he would feel validated. And I think that that has been borne out. Yeah, And, then, I, and that was important for me. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. Um and the thing that's so interesting to me is that it seems so basic. Yeah, listen, duh, of course you you listen and you actively listen. Uh, but it's not it's not that easy. And I don't think it is that easy. <laughs> not too I, many I, people are good at it. Yeah. No, and I and I think, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for myself and everyone else. Um so I, without going into the details, uh, we're all very close. My son, my wife, and I are very, very close. That said, I've had conversations with my son that were not always the most pleasant for me to 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 hear. Um, and if you don't think that the reflex was to defend myself instantaneously, um, you'd be wrong. I wanted to. It, it is, it's difficult. To not defend yourself when you feel like you are being um, misunderstood, attacked, assaulted, uh, when you in any way, shape, or form feel as though you are somehow um, being incapacitated vis-a-vis the discourse that's occurring between you and your son or whoever that loved one is. I'm sure you've it sounds like you're suggesting that's occurred as a stepmom. It sounds like it. So I don't want to put words in your mouth. As a as a stepmom, as a, a partner, 
you know, in a, in a relationship, uh, it's, it, it's something that we all, again, you use the word practice. It is a practice yeah. because you never get it 100% right. No. So I want to move on and uh, maybe hit some nerves and get very personal. Uh, from the Washington Post piece, I know that your own father had an explosive temper and that made you feel not just anxious, but it made you feel unseen and unheard. And so going back to the story that you read from the problem of Ed, which we've just given listeners just the the tiniest taste of, I want to ask how much of Ed and how much of the fathers in this collection, terms of engagement, are modeled on your own father? Um, all of them to some degree. My poor dad, he's no longer with us, so uh, he, he doesn't have the opportunity to uh, fly down and defend himself, uh, <laughs> at least not, not vis-a-vis Skype. Uh, that said, I, I, I would say the, 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 the father in the title story, Terms of Engagement, probably most resembles my own father. Uh, he, he, from my, and again, this is my perspective now, you know, so I want to be sure that, to say that he has his own story and uh, perhaps if he was here, he'd tell it. Right. And he'd, be, he'd be welcome to it. But that, again, doesn't necessarily negate the feelings that I had or have, then those feelings don't necessarily have to be representative of the truth, but they're still my feelings. So growing up, my feeling was uh, that, uh, yes, he did have an explosive temper. So I never knew when what I said would trigger that temper. Uh, I don't ever recall my father ever, ever in his life saying, I hear you, ever, or anything that sounded remotely like that. He talked a blue streak. He basically never shut up. And if he, um, I found as, a, as an older child and an adult that if I wanted him to stop talking, all I had to do was say something that I believed he would find emotionally connecting and he would then become quiet, uh, not just reticent, but basically quiet. Like what? So, like what? Uh, if I said to him, um, if I had said to him, you know, Dad, um, I've really been thinking about, um, you know, the work that I'm doing and I'm having some difficulty with some of the things that I'm doing, that would have gotten dead silence. Just like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, 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 otherwise, um, in any given in any given um, encounter with him, uh, it, I would I could say to him, for example, which happened, you know, a million times, "Hey, Dad, how are you doing?" And he would say, "Lousy," and then for the next hour, tell me why he felt lousy. Wow. Uh, so I, I don't want to spend too much time denigrating him, um, but but I would, but but I don't mind saying that that that's where these feelings emerged from, and um, and then I found out that lots of sons have lots of difficulties with their dads, and they don't necessarily replicate these, but um, but some do, and some are very similar. And I read a very interesting statistic. 
uh, and it was in a um, book published by this uh, wonderful man um, who gave me actually a blurb. And I, I did want to say very quickly, the blurbs that I got from mental health professionals were very validating and made me feel really um, uh, good. And this one was from James Hollis, a Jungian analyst. He's head of a Jungian Institute in Washington, D.C., where you are. And in a book he had written, he quoted um, a study, a survey that was done. Now, the survey by now would be probably over 20 years old. So it's conceivable that there's differences. Nevertheless, in that survey, um, they interviewed a large number of sons, and only 17% of sons said they had a good relationship with their father. So at least from my perspective, I, I don't feel like I'm necessarily alone, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I I do. Yeah. And it's interesting that you kind of, um, you know, feel the need to, like, apologize, for lack of a better word, about, uh, you know, articulating your, your, uh, your relationship, your feelings about your relationship with your father, because... Well, um, if it's okay, I, yeah, Karen, let me... I'm sorry, I'm interrupting no, you. No, go very ahead. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. I'm doing what I shouldn't do, which is not listening to you. But but only because I, I maybe I can, from my perspective, um, I am totally comfortable about my feelings, if you know what I mean. I'm don't, I feel fine with the feelings that I have re regarding him. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm more than happy to talk about them. Um, I think I, I always think to myself, this poor guy's not even around to defend himself anymore. And maybe that was at the uh, crux of, you know, what, what felt like an apology. But but the feelings that I have about him, no, 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 I'm fine with them. I'm okay. And I, I, I'm, I'm comfortable with them, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Sorry, I cut no, you off. No. no, I, I, I do know what you mean. And I relate to it and appreciate it and appreciate the autobiographical component underlying these fictional stories and the tension that helps make these stories so effective. I mean, in uh, my short story collection, uh, there, there's a huge. They're, they're fiction. These stories are fiction, but there's, there's a huge autobiographical component underlying that. And it's interesting because when my, when my short story collection was published in 2015, my mother was still alive uh, and yet slipping into dementia, mm -hmm. and I, I didn't want her to read the book, and I. Mean, meaning what, you didn't want her to see anything that would upset her. Right. That I didn't yeah. want to hurt her. I hear and, you. Uh, and, I, you know, and in spite of her shortcomings, and that sounds judgmental, but it, it's it's not. We all have shortcomings. You know, we're human. We're flawed. Uh, we're flawed as lovers, as partners, as parents, as step-parents. Um, but in you know, in spite of her flaws that sparked some of what I felt was strong fiction. We as authors always think our fiction is strong. Um, uh, I didn't want her to read into it and, and, and be hurt. And I never had to, 
I never had to experience that. But, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. And I'm thinking of Mary Carr in, mm. you know, her memoir about how she almost seemed to, again, I, maybe I'm using the wrong word, be apologetic for her mother and her mother's uh flaws as a as a parent it's just it's i mean like we could talk about this for six hours and well no i i hear you i and i'd be interested again in your opinion too even though i know technically you're interviewing me Um, (laughs) but i but i i thought about what you said and and i and i did hear it and i uh, you know about apologetic and wanted to relate something which is comes from deeply within. So why not? I can reveal this. Uh, it's only conceivable. Seven billion people could be listening. <laughs> and that is the following that I often thought to myself while my father was alive, even when he was in the midst of a harangue, not when he was screaming at me, because then I was usually too obliterated to, to think, but often thought, especially as an older adult, if he, meaning my father, Dad came to me and said something to the effect of, you know what, um, I'm not going to tell you that I'm going to be perfect, but I'm going to commit myself to hearing you. Um, I could almost imagine myself saying, okay, all's forgiven. We can start over. Uh, and I think that's how um, connected or how, how much sons want to be connected with their fathers and mothers and daughters too i'm sure certain and mm-hmm. mothers and sons etc does that make sense it does make sense yeah. and and i agree and all of us have those intentions and those intense desires and needs and wants and yet the execution of it in real life and everyday living is so difficult. And that's why I think these stories r- resonate. Yeah, I, I think, um, uh, as you said that too, it occurred to me too, that that, that in, in all of the stories, um, both the fathers and the sons feel ag- aggrieved, almost equally, if you know what I mean. They mm-hmm. all, they both feel misunderstood. And Sometimes even looking at them, I think, well, God, how could the, how could this father think for a moment that he's misunderstood? Look, look at how he's treating this kid. Right, right. Um, so that's me taking the side of the son. And yet, if I look through another lens and try hard to look through the father's lens, yeah, I'm not defending the father, if you know what I mean. Right. But I'm right. saying that he too is vulnerable. And the last thing I was going to say is the following, is that one of the things for me that distinguishes the father from the son, and I have no doubt the mother from the daughter, is the very real kind of power and authority that the father possesses that the child simply doesn't and never will, no matter how old they become, meaning no matter how much of an adult they become, that father still is the father. Right, right. And yes. possesses an enormous cudgel if he wants to use it. Right, he's the he's he's the power figure, the authority. Um, I, I want to shift back to something uh, you said about your blurbs. You talked about James Hollis, uh, a PhD in Jungian 
analyst uh, who gave you a great spot on blurb. But another blurb was from another, none other than T.C. Boyle. And he sang your praises. And I'm, I, I'm curious as to how you got that blurb. Well, that, that I can remember getting the blurb from him and thinking, my word. <laughs> I'm speechless. Um, yeah. And I do take after my father a little bit. So uh, for me to be that speechless for the moment. Uh, about, um, oh my God, it's got to be 20 years or so ago now, maybe longer, probably a little bit longer. I um, worked with who I, I worked with him uh, when he was narrating a book that he had written, and I was directing the book for um, uh, Harper Audio at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got along very well, and uh, uh, he's got a great sense of humor, and he's easy to talk to. Um, and uh, needless to say, lots of time went by. I prob- I may have it 10 years later. I don't know why. I may have simply somehow corresponded with him, asked him how his kids were doing. Or it, it, I mean, it came up, it sort of came up organically. And then, uh, you know, in trying to get blurbs and things, you think to yourself, hey, what have I got to lose? Right. Many people have said no. So um, I asked the publisher, because I didn't feel comfortable doing it myself, to send him uh, a uh, uh, a note and ask if he would give a blurb for the um for the book. And uh, about a week and a half went by and the publisher is a British woman and she's so sweet. And she, um, she sent him a note two weeks later and said, hello, Tom, H-A-L-L-O. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then she said just, you know, one sweet sentence about, I, you know, how busy, blah, blah, blah. And he said uh, something, I'm on a plane, I'm this, I'm that. And three days later, there was the review. I mean, there was wow. the blur. Wow. So, uh, and I subsequently saw him at an event in New York, and um, he he was very nice to me and told me um, how how much he liked, obviously, the collection, and and uh, and needless to say, I was very grateful for it. It it helped me a lot, and I know that it helped me get the attention of the Washington Post. I'm positive that it did. Oh, yeah, and I I just uh, I, you know I asked that question because like you know that's me being kind of just you know, being a fan girl and awed by this big name. But it's also, it, it, you know, it's interesting to to hear your answer to the question. And, and it's, it's really beautiful in this very difficult publishing industry. When you see people who are up at the top of the ladder and they're reaching their arm down to you to pull you up. And it's just, it gives me shivers and it makes me so happy uh, again, because this, this is an industry it's, you know, art writing is an industry. Sorry. Um, And there are so many times where I've felt where I'm trying to put my, 
hands on the rung up the ladder and I feel like people are stomping on my hands. And so when there are authors who are reaching down to lift me up, uh, like the women who blurbed my book, uh, Antonia Crane, Samantha Dunn, Susan Henderson, Renee Denfeld, and uh, it's just like, oh my God, thank you know, thank you so much for letting me like, you know, ride on your tail for for helping me. And it's and, and it is a tremendous help. It, it and, is. And and me yeah. too. My my fingers are sore too, believe me. I mean yeah. <laughs> healing it. So so uh you're 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 so right. I mean, uh, uh, look, all the all the blurbs are wonderful, and they really are. But but obviously, Tom Boyle d- did not have to, as you suggested, reach down. And I think I love that metaphor because, in the best sense of the word, you know, not reach right, down right, like right, right, right. I'm helping this idiot, but but because I don't <laughs> think he would put his name on something he didn't like. No. And I will tell you, just P.S. I know that he read the collection because he then sent me an email. And uh, said, well, you know, how he liked it and all this. And he said, and you know, Paul, he said, I was just wondering, um, you, you did, did mention my name in there. And I, I assume that that doesn't disqualify me from giving you a review. I thought, well, I told my wife, I said, he actually, he did read the collection. He read it. So one of the short stories, um, a Smile Like Sisyphus, um, the father in that story um, refers to his favorite novelist who is tc boyle (laughs) (laughs) i love it i love it uh you know this the circle completes itself um well we are running out of time and i'm so disappointed because i had all of these other questions uh specifically about uh the story a minor adjustment which for people who are listening i will footnote that when I was a uh, fiction editor of Connotation Press, uh, I published uh, in, it was July 2016, I went back and, and looked it up, and uh, it's an incredible piece, and that's how Paul and I met. We met through yeah. the slush pile, and uh, uh, we've become uh, writing friends, real friends. Uh, I'll share with all of you listening that uh, after I think you'd been back from a trip to Asia with your wife, Mm -hmm. not even 24 hours. And I was doing a reading in New York and and you you showed up. Uh, You were a little sleepy, but you showed up and. Uh, and it was so funny. Uh, everyone listening will appreciate this, but uh, I the the reading was at this well-known uh, the Sunday Salon reading series, which has been around forever, and it's like on the I want to say the third Sunday of every month, and so it's at a set time, and so this reading that I was that I was so excited about. Uh, happened to coincide with the series finale of Game of Thrones. Mm. And so, (laughs) so Paul, you were such a good sport too. I mean, like there were like, other than the people reading and their spouses, I think there were probably 
five people in the audience and you are one of them. So I will forever be grateful to well, you. Well, I, I would have been there regardless. And I, and of course I do, I, I can't tell you the zing that I got when I heard from you regarding a minor adjustment and, and what a great feeling that was and how proud I was to have that story published and by you and to, you know, what, what that meant, because I know how many, I have an idea how many stories were received by you guys and lots of other people, you know, who work for literary publications. And also, um, I, I get a lot of joy out of being supportive of you, who is, is a friend and writers in general and people who support me. You, you have to do that. You don't have to, but it's, as you said, your knuckles are usually hurting. So yeah. I always, it's a great salve and it always feels good. And, um, um, that's one of my favorite stories of minor adjustment. Of course, yeah. I like them all, but I do. And, you know, um, I wish we had a little more time to talk about it only because uh, it, it, um, uh, if I can say that in 30 seconds, I tried to imagine myself a father who has who has not seen his son for 30 years, who essentially abandoned him to go live somewhere else, comes back wants to reestablish the relationship and then basically never shuts up mm -hmm. and only talks about himself. Uh, I, you know. Yeah, it's an, it's an incredible story. And I have in my notes here, I have about five questions and uh, sadly uh, those those questions we, All won't, right. we won't be able to get to. so everybody who's listening you're just going to have to read the book uh, a minor adjustment is one of many fabulous uh stories of the father and son in the short story collection terms of engagement by paul allen rubin i know you can get this on amazon paul but where else can people get it uh, amazon is definitely on amazon barnes and noble whatever it's on all those websites and it's also on audible it's an audio that's right that's right that's and, another thing um, i wanted to talk to you about is your, your audio book ventures yes. yeah yeah, and yeah. Uh, and I think it's wonderful. And if you want to hear somebody narrate the piece that I did, please listen to the audiobook that's narrated by a young man named David Ledoux, and he is as good as it gets. He's such a talented actor. Uh, and I have lots of other very well-known narrators uh, in the narrator community, meaning not, not big-time big celebrities, but people like Scott Brick, who everybody knows, and so on and so forth. Anyway, you know, so yeah. I was very lucky to get all those wonderful people. But it's... it's um. It's all over the place. So you can get it, as I said, Audible, Barnes & Noble, you name it. Uh, uh, we call it uh, uh, Audible, of course. Yeah. And uh, again, we're, we're, we're about to sign off here, but everybody listening, uh, Paul has a couple of those things uh, called Grammys uh, for do. his audiobook <laughs> ventures. Yeah. So again, uh, not enough time to cover all of these interesting topics, but but check them out. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I, and I hope I get to see you soon. You will. I'm coming to DC. We'll, I'll email you and I'll find you. Uh, okay. And so we'll, I'll look forward to it, Karen. Sounds wonderful. Thanks, right. Paul. Thank you very much. I appreciate it very, very much. Thanks, Karen.